Okay. The Sunday after Easter. It's always kind of a, I don't know about you guys, is it a letdown the Sunday after Easter? Like you have all these folks here and this room was packed out and you come in, no matter how, we have a good crowd here this morning, uh, uh, but it's kind of like, it's kind of weird. It's kind of, uh, you have people running around and you, and you can't hardly walk and stuff like that. So it's always kind of, every year I kind of like, I don't dread it, but I just go like, I got to, the band, I was telling them, hey, we've got to get up because everybody's going to be down this morning, you know. They've had a whole week, you know. Some of you were on spring break the week before last. Everybody who's in Washington and Morton was on spring break this past week. And so it's kind of, that's what's going on. Um, just to let you know where we are, uh, we're still in the book of the Gospel of John. We're going to be there this week and next week uh, because actually after the uh, resurrection, that's not the end of the Gospel. There is actually some, uh, some stuff here to end of chapter 20. We'll be in chapter 20 today, so if you have a Bible or uh, whatever you want to turn to it, turn, turn to chapter 20, verse 24 is where we're starting today. And then next week, Chris is going to teach, and uh, we'll, he'll be finishing up chapter 21. And then following that, we'll start a whole series uh, for about six weeks on prayer, uh, talking about, no, not really sure what I'm going to call it yet, uh, got to figure that out this week. I have the sermons lined up, just don't have a title for the series yet. So uh, just we'll be doing that, talking about the importance of connecting with God. So we'll be, we'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks. Now, Today, I don't know about you guys, but um, don't you love Christians who have good intentions, but sometimes you're going through a tough time and they give you some really trite little phrases and make you supposed to feel good? You know, people always have an answer. You, you know, you're going through a crisis in your life, and, and they come up to you and they give you these three words, and probably the three, you, they think they're giving you three words that are really encouraging, but they're really probably the most discouraging words for you at that point in your life because they say something like, like this. They say, I mean, you're, you're there, and you're going through this crisis, and they say, well, just have faith. Don't you love that? Just have faith. I mean, you're, 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 your finances have fallen apart, and, and, you, and you don't know where you're gonna pay your next, how you're going to pay your next bill. Just have faith. I don't know about you, but I don't want somebody to come up to me and tell me to just have faith. I want to smack them when they say something like that, because the reality is, that does, is that's not very helpful, is it? Just have faith is, is a nice phrase, but sometimes we just need to keep our mouth shut and, 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 and just, you know, and, and, and instead of doing that, what I need in, when a time like that, when you're going through a crisis, when things are not going well, when I'm having doubts in life, what I need somebody to tell me is not just have faith, but I, but I need someone who can say to me, here is how to have faith. And today we're going to look at a passage of scripture about a guy who had some doubts but also it helps us to understand some keys to having faith as well in times of, in, in our life. And so we're going to look at John chapter 20, beginning with verse 24. Now, last week we finished up a few verses before this, and there's a gap in here we're not really covering. Because we talked last week on Easter Sunday about Jesus' appearance to Mary and the resurrection. And, and then following that, that, that evening, that evening after Jesus appeared to Mary, he appeared in the upper room with, uh, with some of his disciples there. Not all the disciples we find out, but just some of them. And, uh, but now we go with verse 24. And in verse 24, it says this, Now Thomas, also known as, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And they're going like, okay. And this is actually a week later, a week, week, week later when this is written. And that night when, when, uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, and he, and he kind of says, he, and literally when you read the verses before this, he says he appeared, the doors were locked, but he appears 
So I was sharing with you before, he kind of like, Jesus didn't need to come out of the tomb. He didn't, they didn't roll away the stone so Jesus could get it out because Jesus obviously had the ability to go anywhere he wanted to without worrying about space and limitations, things like that. It was so we could get into the tomb. But it says that uh, that night, uh, as he was in the upper, uh, upper room and, 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 and the disciples were gathered there, they were gathered in fear and Jesus appeared between them. The one guy that was not there was a guy named Thomas. And the question I asked was, why was Thomas not with the other disciples when they met on the evening of the resurrection day? I, we don't really know. We can, we can only conjecture. Was it because he was dis disappointed that he not, did not want to be with his friends? Did he, but when he, when he was, was he discouraged and defeated? So he didn't know at that point what had happened. He hadn't touched Jesus. He hadn't seen Jesus. And the, the thing I see this so often is this. When we're discouraged and defeated, we need our friends all the more. But solitude so often is what we do. Instead of, solitude only feeds discouragement and helps it grow into self-pity. That's what happens so often. That's why it's so important, folks, that when you're going through a tough time, is not to pull away from people. But to get, think, think about this. Thomas, for a whole week, was discouraged because he wasn't there to actually see Jesus physically. Sometimes we need a connection, the touch with other people. That's why you need to be in your small group on a regular basis. That's why it's so important to gather with believers for worship. You know, you know God works in that way amongst a, a group of people, and you miss it, like Thomas did. It may lead you to missing having a whole week of discouragement. Perhaps Thomas was afraid. That's what it said to all the rest of the disciples were. They were afraid. But we know in John eleven sixteen 16, it indicates that he was basically a courageous man. He was willing to, uh, to go to Judea and die with the Lord, it says. And then John 14, 5, it reveals that Thomas was a spiritually minded man. He was a person who, wants, who wanted to know the truth and was not ashamed to ask questions. But for some reason, over all the years, he's got another tag. Because one thing that happens here in John chapter 20 verses 24 and following. We call him what? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. It seems to be like, wow, man, how would you like to have that as your tag? You know? Doubting Bill. I'm just going to put it for your name, you know? Your whole life, your whole history, not only on your whole life, but throughout history, you're known as Doubting Thomas. But you know that Jesus didn't rebuke him for his doubts. What he rebuked him for was his unbelief. It's because doubt is often an intellectual problem. We want to believe, but the faith is overwhelmed by the problems and the questions. Unbelief is kind of a moral problem because we simply will not believe. And the question today we're going to look at is, why was it that Thomas would not believe? And so we begin to read the story here in, in verse 24, and it begins with Thomas's, Thomas and his journey of faith. Now, the first thing he teaches us here, the Bible teaches us here is this. If we're going to be able to deal with our doubts, the first thing we have to do is do something that sounds almost counterintuitive, but is we need to remove our doubts. We have to first admit that they're even there, you know, that you have doubts. It's all, let, me, let, me, let me explain something to you. It's all right to doubt. God, Jesus did not eject Thomas from the kingdom because he doubted. But the doubts were the beginning of a process. But you've got to remove your doubts. And so in John chapter uh, uh, 20, verse 25, it says, it says this. So the other disciples, it says Thomas wasn't in the upper room, and he wasn't there. And it, and it says, uh, he says in verse uh, 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in, in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. See, the primary cause for Thomas's doubt was his requirements for belief. He said what? He said, unless, and then further on, I won't believe. Unless this happens, I won't believe. He put these requirements upon belief that were un unreasonable. And we do the same things lots of times. I've heard people do this many, many times. We'll, we'll say things like, well, unless I have all my questions answered, I won't believe. Unless I get my act together, I won't believe and follow Christ. Unless this happens, and we put all these requirements that aren't biblical requirements upon our, upon our act of, of faith of following Christ. But Thomas lived with doubt because he put unrealistic requirements upon faith. What was his requirements? I have to see and I have to touch. Now, that is not what faith is based upon seeing and touching because you know faith in a, in a biblical sense the faith let me give you a very basic definition of faith faith is informed trust it's informed trust last week we talked about the thing in in uh with mary and as we talked about that i said one of the things that we can base our our faith upon is is that there was evidence there's evidence that there was christ the evidence from history the evidence from from, the, uh, the, the, from all kind of things. And, and faith is not blind trust, it, it's informed trust. Matter of fact, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, this is a, a, it gives you a biblical definition of faith. It says this, faith is the conviction about something that you're, what? Hoping for. And faith is a certainty, a certainty about something you do not see. So you see the problem with the, with Thomas's, with Thomas's requirements for faith and the reason he had doubt is because he put these requirements that I have to see, I have to touch. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to understand, we have to redefine in a sense what, what, uh, what, what faith really is and, we have to and that'll help us to remove the doubts that we have in our life. It began the process in a sense uh, because Jesus comes and he talks to, talks to, uh, to, to Thomas about that as well. So the first thing is we've got to remove our doubts, but that becomes by redefining what faith really is. The second thing, though, the second thing that if you're struggling with doubt, the second key is you need to redirect your will. You need to redirect your will. Now, what I mean by this is this. There are two very important statements in this passage. We'll look here in, in this, this whole passage here about faith. One of them comes from Thomas, and the second one comes from Jesus. Thomas says when, he comes to the, to, uh, when the disciples come to him, and they say to him, they say, hey, we've seen Jesus. And they say, you need to believe as well. What was Thomas's response? His response was at the end of, uh, verse, uh, end of verse uh, uh, 25 is, I will not believe. That was his response. What does that mean? It means in a real sense you have to redirect your will. He's saying, I'm choosing not to believe. That's what Thomas was saying. It's an act of the will. He's telling us right there it's a choice. It's a matter of our will. Jesus amplifies this when he comes a week later and it says in verse 26, it says, a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. 
And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Once again, Jesus walks through walls. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. And then he says this phrase to Thomas, he says, Stop doubting and believe. He said, you know, yeah, it's all right, Thomas, to doubt, but don't let it be the place where you camp out. Stop doubting and believe. See, our, words, our Lord's words literally translate, stop becoming faithless, but become a believer. That's what he's saying. When Thomas said, I will not believe, he used in the Greek language a double negative. He basically said this, I positively will not believe. He was making a statement of the will. I just refuse to believe. And at least he's honest. At least he's honest in saying the reason I won't believe is because I've decided I'm not going to believe. I'm choosing not to believe. And that, that raises a question for many of us, and the question is this, is, uh, uh, for many people, is the question, is faith a head decision or a heart decision? Is, is faith a head decision or a heart decision? Hmm. My answer, Neither. Neither. The truth is, faith is a matter of the will. That means for your, your will, you're, you're deciding, your volition is saying, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care what my head says. I don't care what my heart says. I'm going to do this in spite of those things. Faith is a matter of the will. It's a matter of decision. And the, the fact is this. We're all growing in one of two directions in our life. One direction we can be growing in is more faith. The other direction we can grow in, though, is more doubt. We have that option. It's a matter of the will. It's informed trust, yes, that's what faith is, but it's not simply, but it's a matter of the will. Jesus looks at Thomas and he says this, stop doubting and believe. That meant it was a matter of his will. I mean, if it wasn't a matter of the will, Jesus tell him it's, it's like somebody, like you're laying on the side of the road and you've been in an accident and you're, and you're injured and somebody comes up to you and says, stop hurting. Is that possible? Well, unless you're a Vulcan or something, I don't know. Unless you're a Star Trek person, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But anyway, you know, you have this, yeah, you're going to hurt. You cannot stop that because it's something that happens. It's not a matter of the will. That's a ha- matter of circumstance. But what Jesus is saying to Thomas, he says, doubting is something you chose to do, and now you need to choose to not do it anymore. It's a matter of your will. Something he could decide. And Thomas, guess what Thomas did? Because the very next verse tells us something very important. He reminds us of a third important, very key ingredient that if I want to overcome doubt in my life, this is what I need to do, what we need to do. And this is, this is a verse sometimes we just kind of miss because it's so short. It's only five words, really, as far as the, what Thomas says. The third key, to, in, a, in a sense, to, to, to removing doubts and living in more faith, a faithful life is to renew your confession of faith. Renew your confession of faith. And this is what Thomas did. In, in John 20, 28, Thomas said to him, what? My Lord and my God. You're going like, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's huge. Because verbally, what he says, and he, he renews his confession of faith, there's five little words here, and they're important words. And sometimes, like I said, we can miss them. Let's look at the words. The first word, my. What does that say? It's, the word is personal. It's a word that emphasizes the fact that faith isn't somebody else's. Thomas is saying it's my faith. 
my trust. It's something that has to happen in my life. And then he uses the word, he says, my Lord. The word Lord is the word that declares the fact that Jesus Christ is the manager of his life. He's the one that I'll look for, for direction, for guidance. Thomas had called him teacher before, but now he calls him Lord. And he's saying that you're the one who's going to set the pattern for my life. He's making that confession with his lips. And then there's a little word we probably just leave out, the word and. You know, you're going like, wow, that's a really deep word. No, well, the thing is this, and that's a, a simple short word in the confession, but it reminds me that you cannot contain God and uh, the person of Jesus Christ in one word. Jesus is the Lord, but he's more than that. He's more than that. He's the Lord, but he's also our creator, our master, all these other things. He's, he's Lord and. And that's what, the, what uh, Thomas was saying. So Thomas, even in his simple confession, recognizes the greatness of Jesus Christ. And then he uses the word my again. He says, my Lord and my. He tells us how powerfully, and because he uses us twice, it tells how powerfully personal our confession of faith Jesus Christ needs to be. Yes, we can get together. It's important to get together and sing together. It's important to, um, to draw on one another's faith, but no one else can have faith for you. Parents, this is hugely important. Your kids. Your kids can only see your faith. They can't have your faith. But it's important for you to be a witness for them. There are no grandchildren in God's kingdom. They're only children of God. And so what you and I need to understand is, just because the most, the most important thing I will stop here a second because I have time today to do this, okay? The most important thing that you can do in your children's lives is to help them to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not to get them to be a professional athlete or to do everything there is to do in this world. It's to help them to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If they become, you know, hugely successful in every other area of life but they don't need Jesus Christ, you're a failure. You're a failure as a parent, according to what God's word is. I'm a failure. That's how, I, that's how the deal is this. You know, I was excited last night when my son call, called me. He says, hey, Dad, I think I got a new job. And I was excited about that. But I, then I asked him, I said, how's, how's things going with you and your walk with God? Oh, great. You know, and he started talking to me about that. He was excited about some stuff that was going on at his church and stuff like that. And I'm going like, that's fantastic. See, our confession of faith is huge. It's about my. It's about me. It's my personal. That's one of the things here. My Lord and my. And then the last word, God. Probably the most powerful word in the confession, God. Thomas looked at Jesus, the man he's been walking with for three years, and the rest of the disciples. And he says, you're not just the Messiah sent from God. In some miraculous way, Thomas didn't understand everything, but he says, you know something? You're more than Jesus just walking with us. You're God. You're the one who's in charge of everything. You're my Lord and my God, the personal director of my life whose being cannot be contained in words, a powerful per personal creator that I look to. See, Thomas's experience here teaches us some important things about genuine faith. I love what, uh, there's, uh, I'm not real big into poetry and stuff, but there's, a few, there's one guy a long time ago, Alfred Tennyson, that wrote some really cool stuff. A lot of short phrases. I like short phrases. I can remember them. You know? I don't know about you guys. But uh, I don't remember long poems, but I remember short phrases. 
And one of the best phrases he ever said was this. He said this. He said, there is more faith in honest doubts than in half the creeds. There is more faith in honest doubts than in half the creeds. You know, what are creeds? Creeds are things that other people write about faith. And sometimes if you grew up in a liturgical church, and you're going like, what's a liturgical church? It means a church that has a lot of, lot of things you say over and over again. That's what liturgy is. You know, you might say the, the Apostles' Creed. You might do this. You might do this. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the fact is sometimes we repeat things, and they really don't mean anything to us because they're not personal. And so if I have some honest doubts and express them honestly to God, then I've made a personal connection with him so he can answer those doubts. That's what Thomas did. You know, Thomas didn't come and say, hey, I believe everything because all these other guys said it. He said, Jesus, he says, I want to believe, but I have some doubts. And my doubts are such that I have to touch, and he said he makes some unreal expectations. Let me tell, tell, say this to you. If you've got some doubts, if you're a believer, but you've still got some doubts about God's direction in life, about God's ability to supply your needs, if you have some doubts, don't hide them. That's not a sin to doubt. It's a sin to continue to doubt forever and not turn to God for the answers. But it's not a sin to doubt. Tell God just like Thomas did. When you start to make it personal between you and God, he can start to answer those doubts. That's the marvel of what he does. When we go look at prayer in a few weeks, one of the things that we do in prayer so often is we come to God, we praise him for who he is, but we also bring, we're honest to him. You don't have to have any flowery language to pray. You just got to be honest and speak to God. Not as your best buddy, by the way, okay? Because he's not your best buddy. He is God. He's not an equal. But the thing is, he still wants to be there for you. So when I do that, I learned the real power of being able to confess my faith to him. Thomas teaches us some important things about confessing our faith in the middle of our doubts. Now, let me share with you three things I think I learned from this. Number one, confessions are vital. Confessions are vital in our life. Without them, faith is not alive. If I'm not telling God what he means in my life, then I don't have faith. So one of the things we're going to learn about in prayer is that if, if we are not on a regular basis, part of our prayer life is not, in a sense, confessing to God who, he, who we believe he is and how he affects our life, then we've missed out on one of the elements of prayer that's so important. Prayer is not just about asking God for a grocery list of stuff. It's more than that. See, if I'm just listening to somebody else talk about God or somebody else sing about God, then I'm missing out on a thing. Confessions are vital. I need to say it myself to God. So when we sing, we get to confess our faith together to God and personally to God. And so let me, let me say this to you. On Sunday mornings when you sing, what are you thinking about? If the words are about, you know, you know, some of the words this morning, if you were singing them, were you just kind of singing them because you were just going through the motions, or were you singing them to God as an expression of faith, a confession of faith? That's the reason we sing. We are not, guess what? This is not the audience. God's the audience. We're singing it to him as a way of expressing our faith to him. So you're going like, I am, you know, and you're kind of like singing, and you're not really excited about that. I don't care if you can sing well or not. The Bible says make a joyful what? Noise, yeah, noise. And some of you make noise. But let me tell you this. How many of you have been to seventh grade band concerts? 
Why did you go? You're a parent. Nobody else goes to seventh grade band concerts. <laughs> right? Because they're horrible. It's not even a joyful noise. It's just a, a chaotic noise. That's all it is. Right? But you go because you love your kids and they do it and you're so excited. Think about that on Sunday morning when you sing. God wants to stay. You're all seventh graders. <laughs> and you may not do it very well, but God is still your father and he loves you and he loves it when you say to him, I love you in whatever way you do that. I didn't have that plan. That was all off the top of my head just then. I don't know. Sometimes the... I don't know, that's weird. Okay. Sometimes it's not good, sometimes it works out. So anyway. <laughs> but anyway, confessions are vital. That's one of the things I learned from Thomas here. The second thing, confessions are personal. He said, my Lord and my God. He was very personal. Very personal. The Bible's idea of confession is a per personal declaration of belief. And the reason that people have written those down has been because they want to write down. It's not necessarily for somebody else, but sometimes we take those declarations of belief that somebody else has written for themselves, and we turn it around and we make it our own. And that's good if we do that. But then the other thing I learned from, from Thomas is, well, confessions are visible. They're visible. Others know about it. You confess with your mouth. You know what it says in, in Romans 10, 9 and 10? And I love it in a New, New Century Version. It says it this way. If you use your mouth to say, Jesus is Lord... And if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. We believe with our hearts, and so we are made right with God. And we use what? Our mouths. Our mouths to say that we believe so that we are saved. When you love somebody, what do you talk? You talk about them? Yeah. And if we love God, we want to talk about him. It's something that we don't keep to ourselves. It's something we want to share with others. And so that's part of the confession that when, when Thomas, he turned from his doubts. He had doubts were something, a part of his life. He said, you know, I won't believe because I'm choosing not to believe. But then it turned it around and Jesus said to him, he said, hey, quit doubting and believe. And he said, that's a matter of your will. You can do that. And he says, because I've showed you a lot of things. Yeah, you can touch me, whatever. But he says, you need to, to trust in me. This verse, in a sense, here in Romans 10 tells us the importance of making it visible, letting other people know about your faith. Now, I'm not talking about being legalistic in that way. I'm talking about doing it just in a natural way. The truth is, I've got to be willing to share it with other people. That's what, my, that's what real, makes faith real. Then in verse 29, I learned, in John 20, 29, I love this verse because this really ties it from the past to the present. It really brings it home for us right now today. And it says it this way. It says, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But this is the good part. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What is that saying? It's saying it is not necessary to see you're going like, I, you know, it would be cool to live back then and actually to see Jesus and to walk with him. I'd have so much greater faith. No. See, you know, it's not necessary to see Jesus Christ in order to believe. Yes, it was a blessing for the early Christians to see their Lord and to know he was alive, but that is not what saved them. Not seeing. Seeing did not save them. What saved them? Believing. 
believing. The emphasis throughout the Gospel of John is on believing. You know that he, there are nearly 100 references in this Gospel alone to the believing? So obviously it's important. And can we believe today just the way they believed 2,000 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So they were at no advantage. They were at no advantage. See, today you and I cannot see Christ, but we can see him perform the miracles, the signs that, and we can see that and know specifically because we have this. And as we read this, it gives us a record of what God did, what Jesus did as he walked among us in the Gospels, and it tells us those type of things there. And I love what it says in Romans 10, 17, it says, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word. God has given us the opportunity today. We're going like, well, you know, yeah, we don't have to see. And that's what Jesus was saying to Thomas. He said, Thomas, you don't have to see and to touch me. You just have to say, I'm going to, you know what's going on here. You need to believe. You need to believe. How you overcome your doubts is choose to, 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 to trust in a real sense. See, people are not saved by believing. Also, people are saying, well, wouldn't it be cool to see miracles like Jesus was doing? Was anybody ever really saved for, by seeing a miracle? It pricked their interest, but it really didn't save them. They're saved by believing on Jesus Christ. Great crowds, you looked in the scripture, great crowds followed him because of his miracles. But in the end, what, where were most of them? They left. They left. They were the ones who were waving palm branches on Palm Sunday, and on the next, next week they were, they were crucifying Christ and yelling, crucify him. See, even the religious leaders who plotted his death believed that he did miracles, but his faith, but this faith uh, uh, did not save them because they didn't have any. And then John concludes chapter 20 by saying, uh, saying this in verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. <laughs> You're going like, oh, there's other stuff? Yes, yeah, sure. Can you imagine if they recorded everything that Jesus said and did, how, how, how long it would be? It'd be a lot. And it says it here. But these are written that, uh, they're not recorded, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The things we wrote are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, what would happen? You may have life in his name. The last thing we learn from this passage of Scripture, this, this, story, about, uh, the, the, this story about Thomas and going from doubt to belief, is the result of faith, the result of trusting, is life. It's life. See, when people trusted him, their lives, you look at the disciples, when people trusted him, what happened to them? Their lives were transformed. Life is one of the, John's key words. He uses it at least 36 times. Jesus offered sinners, what, abundant life? He offered them eternal life. And the only way they can get it is through a personal faith in him. And so often we think of eternal life as starting when? Come on, y'all know this one. When you die. We think eternal life starts when you die, right? Do you know, you know in Scripture, it says that everybody has eternal life? I mean, they live forever. People that are without Christ live forever. People that are with Christ live forever. But in two different locations. Okay? So the eternal life they're talking about here, he offers us the eternal life is not about living forever. Eternal life is about a quality of life, not a quantity of life. 
It's the spiritual experience of heaven on earth today. So when does it start for the believer? When you follow Jesus Christ and trust him. You are living in light of eternity right now. If you trust Jesus Christ. And you don't have to wait for when they shovel dirt over you to start it. The Christian does not have to die to have eternal life. He possesses it in Christ today. See, the the ten disciples were changed from fear to courage, and Thomas was changed from unbelief to confidence in God. That's the kind of life he wants us to have with him. See, and and John, in a sense, invites you to trust Jesus Christ and be changed from death to life as well. Now, if you've already made this life-changing decision, all I can say for you this morning is give thanks to God that you've done that. But if you've not, if you've not said, hey, you know, I doubt, and my doubts have held me back from trusting, you can make a decision to begin the process of trusting in God. It's your choice. I shared last week as we concluded the service that so often we think that the first step we take in following Christ It's when we say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and we we step across the line. That's what we always talk about all the time. But I think there's a step way before that that we take. Because Jesus did that with his disciples. Every time, every time that he encountered one of his disciples, regardless of where they were in their belief continuum, what did he ask them to do? Follow. Follow where you are. And if that means I'm going to follow after you, Jesus, and I'm going to begin to hear what you have to say, I'm going to begin to read your word, I'm going to begin to do different things, like like I'm going to to maybe attend preaching, go to a small group, do those type of things. And in doing so, what I'm going to do is I make the the first decision is to follow. And some of you last week, last week when I asked at the end of the services, I asked, you know, to bow your heads and close your eyes. And, and we did that. And I asked the first, the first question, who, was you, who of you here, I said, would like to follow Jesus Christ? You're not really at the place of saying, well, I believe all the stuff about Jesus Christ, but I would like to explore this further. That's what, in a sense, was the, the message that Jesus, the invitation that Jesus first gave to his disciples. Because when we began to look at Scripture, we realized that after, it took some, some of these guys a long time to figure out the whole belief thing. They were still struggling in the upper room about a lot of the things. But the first step you have to take is to say, hey, in spite of my doubts, in spite of my lack of information about everything, I want to follow. And then as you follow, guess what will happen? God will change you. And he'll change you. And he'll change you. And you'll become like Thomas, not only somebody who followed Jesus, but a person who came to a place Three years after his relationship began with Jesus, finally saying, hey, I have confidence in you. You are my Lord and my God. And that's where he wants us to be. So where are you? Where are you in that continuum? Let's bow our heads this morning and pray. And as we pray this morning, I would ask you to ask yourself, where are you with Jesus? Yeah, it's all right to have doubts. I mean, you know, some days, some days, all of us have doubts. I have doubts from time to time. But then I have to ask myself, well, whom am I going to trust? Am I going to trust my doubts or am I going to trust Jesus Christ? 
And so wherever you are this morning, I would ask that you would just, just, just think about where you are with him and ask, am I following Jesus Christ? Maybe not at this point as Lord and Savior. Maybe I would just at a place where I'm saying, well, I'm going to start checking, checking you out, God. I'm going to check out this whole thing about Jesus. I'm not really sure about everything right now, but I want to go in the direction of you. And that's what Jesus asked his disciples. This morning, if you've never said that to him, I would just pray that you would make that, that commitment to, to follow him. Now, some of you have been here for a long while. You've been here for months or years. And you've been listening and you've been, and you've been hearing God's word and studying scripture and maybe you've been a part of a small group, but you've never come to the place of saying, uh, making a confession of faith to God and saying, my Lord and my God. You've never made it personal. So I would encourage you this morning to make it personal. To say, hey God, I don't know everything. I don't understand everything, but what I do understand, I'm going to place my trust in and you, God, because of what your son Jesus Christ did for me. So this morning, God, I want to take that next step, that next step of, of trusting you fully. Some of you have done that recently. Maybe last week you said that. You said, I want to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And maybe your next step would be to make it visible. And the first visible sign of following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is baptism. Baptism is a visible sign of saying, hey, I've made this confession of faith in my life that Jesus is Lord and he's Savior. And, and in doing so, I want to let other people know. It becomes visible. And in doing so, it's a confession of faith as well. Baptism is more than just a, a symbol. It's, it's a confession of faith that we truly believe what we say. And we're really willing to do it for other people. So I would ask this morning if there's someone that's here that needs to take that step, that you would make a commitment to do that as well. God, we thank you this morning for your goodness and your love. And we thank you for this, this little, little story here about Thomas, a guy who was honest about his doubts. But even in these few verses, this little bit of a story, and I'm sure it's not the whole thing that happened here, just enough to help us to understand some things. You let us know. You let us know what it means to move from doubts to confidence in you. God, help each one of us to understand we all have a next step with you. Help us to, to not only think in our minds about you, to, but to confess with our mouths. Thank you, God, so much. Thank you so much for your incredible love and your goodness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.